Hey everyone, this is Dr. Howe. Welcome to an exciting new episode of the GeoTrek podcast that investigates the science behind severe weather and tornadoes. I did my first tornado chases this spring and I can't wait to share these experiences with you. But before we get to this episode, please subscribe to the GeoTrek podcast. Your subscription helps us track progress and make professional partnerships moving forward. Essentially, it helps us stay on the air so we can keep bringing exciting episodes of the GeoTrek podcast to you. So let's get into it. It's the spring of 2022, and I embarked on a few tornado chases to the Great Plains states. The Great Plains historically has the highest frequency of tornadoes anywhere on the planet. This occurs because of the special geography in the central United States. Warm, moist air from the Gulf of Mexico is sucked into this region from the southeast. That air mass provides instability, which can produce large thunderstorms. This is especially true when we have a mechanism to provide lift in the atmosphere. Cold fronts approaching from the west often provide such lift, enabling severe thunderstorms to pop up near these frontal boundaries. The jet stream, a river of air high in the atmosphere, often pushes through this region as well, creating wind shear when winds change direction with height. Wind shear is an important element for creating severe weather like tornadoes and some forms of hail as well. The last ingredient that is important for severe weather development is what we called a dry air capping layer. Dry air from Mexico and the U.S. Southwest often moves in at mid and upper levels of the atmosphere, producing a cap that is like a lid on a pot of boiling water. The cap enables pressure to build up in the lower levels of the atmosphere. When this cap breaks, thunderstorms experience explosive growth that can lead to extremely large hail, strong winds, heavy rain, and tornadoes. Independent thunderstorms called supercells often develop in these conditions, producing deadly and destructive weather. Supercells are independent thunderstorms that are not part of a line. Under the right conditions, supercells can rotate, leading to the development of multiple severe weather hazards, including tornadoes. This spring, I took my first storm chase to northern Texas in early April. Severe thunderstorm and tornado watch boxes were issued from the DFW Metroplex east to near Longview, Texas. I was excited to get out there and see what I would see. As I drove north from Galveston, where I live, made my storm chase plan, I was communicating with Melissa Moon, the tornado chasing mom who was the star of GeoTrek podcast number four. Melissa lives in the Fort Worth area and has a lot of experience storm chasing and forecasting severe weather. On the evening of my one-day chase, it was a short one, she directed me to an area north of Dallas where a tornado-warned storm had just formed right after I arrived. There I was in McKinney, Texas on my first severe thunderstorm chase. By the time I arrived, it was dark. I was trying to figure out how I wanted to document this storm. I have 14 years experience documenting hurricanes, and I feel really comfortable when big coastal storms move in in August and September. But I felt really out of place that night in April in 2022 in McKinney, Texas, as the National Weather Service put us under a tornado warning and forecasted large hail and damaging straight line winds. I ended up taking refuge at a gas station. I parked my car at the gas pumps to protect it from large hail and ran into the store of the gas station. Minutes later, a fierce squall line hit our location. I felt at ease though and I settled into the storm chase. I found a position just steps away from a concrete enforced bathroom, but found the best place to document the storm was actually outside. I positioned myself at the corner of a building and could easily film the powerful winds blowing from right to left in front of me. The winds were so strong I didn't even get wet as I stayed pressed against the building and again just a few steps from a concrete enforced bathroom in case a tornado suddenly came into view. The worst of the storm passed in 10 minutes, and by 20 minutes, it had pretty much dissipated. A few tree branches had fallen in the community. Some high water covered the lowest dips in the roads, but I saw no hail or tornadoes. Then the weirdest part, 
I went out for pizza. Now, for someone who has chased hurricanes for so many years, I was used to two and three day chases where I try to get into a storm area before authorities set the perimeter. When you're in a hurricane zone, everything is shut down. A lot of people have evacuated. All the restaurants are closed and you're kind of on your own often except for uh, seeing other storm chasers. Uh, Usually hurricane events are long duration wind and rainstorms. Uh, However, here I was uh, chasing a severe thunderstorm with a possible tornado at 9 p.m. The storm had passed, and by 10 p.m., I'm going out for pizza. You know, really what I experienced right away is that tornado chases and severe thunderstorms, they're very short duration compared to hurricanes, and they're very surgical. They really impact one neighborhood, but a mile away, there may be no impact at all. In mid-May, I plan to take a longer stretch of time to chase tornadoes in the Great Plains. I set aside a week from May 7th to 13th to get out there in the plains and learn more about severe weather. If you're going to pick one time of the year to storm chase, May in the southern Great Plains would be a good choice. Historically, this is the heart of severe weather season in Tornado Alley. However, the week I was there was pretty quiet. I encountered a cold, stable air mass during the first days in Oklahoma and Kansas. I always like being productive, so I actually drove up to Lincoln, Nebraska, a hub for refugee resettlement, to learn more about climate refugees. I was killing time until Tuesday when I was going to meet my friend and colleague, Jeremiah Long, a co-worker and excellent videographer who is flying into Kansas City on Tuesday of that week. I thought that he would contribute greatly to documenting these amazing storms. We planned for him to fly into Kansas City on Tuesday and fly out of Dallas on Friday. It seemed like a fa- safe bet for us to find some great storms in the Southern Plains, drop Jeremiah off at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and then I drive home to Galveston. What actually happened was way different than our plan. Severe weather risk kept increasing for our storm chase time, but really much farther north than we had anticipated. Instead of in the south, we found ourselves driving to northwest Iowa and southwestern Minnesota on day one of our storm chase to document potential tornadoes that would set up near a frontal boundary. By around 5 p.m. of day one, the sky grew dark, visibility dropped, and the National Weather Service issued a tornado warning just south of us. We suddenly found ourselves in the middle of a vicious squall that dropped our visibility to near zero and buffeted the car with terrifying winds. We never actually saw a tornado that day, but we did see around six to seven telephone poles completely snapped off just down the road from where we rode out the storm. We followed a tornado-worn storm to a town called Wyndham, Minnesota, which had just been hit minutes before we arrived. Rolling into Wyndham felt so out of place. The town looked closer to communities I've seen in Maine and Montana, with deer heads and bear heads on the wall of a local tavern. The interior was decorated with spruce and birch. It looked much more like a northern setting than what you picture being a more uh, southern or south-central Great Plains tornado-chasing place. A Minnesota Vikings neon sign displayed proudly in the tavern window. This didn't feel like what you normally picture Tornado Alley being or what you would see in a tornado chase. We decided to stay the night in Wyndham, Minnesota, where a woman managing our motel showed a keen interest in in severe weather and storm chasing. Her name was Senna, and we stopped to interview her as we checked into the motel right there in Wyndham, Minnesota. We're here in Wyndham, Minnesota. It's day one of the two-day tornado and severe weather outbreak. We're here with Senna, who's a storm chasing fan. You watch a lot of storm chasing stuff on TV. I do, yes, I love it. So Senna, you were here and the tornado alarms went off. What did you do? Uh, First thing I did, I did go in and I knocked on all the doors to let people know safest place for you to be is probably in the bathroom. And then when the alarm stopped, I came outside and I watched the storm. Did you see any, what did you see? What did it look like? Um, A lot of thunder, 
a lot of lightning, lots of lightning, a lot of wind, downpour. You couldn't even see across the road. Yeah, did the, you see how low the clouds were? I did. That was kind of freaky. Yeah. And the thunder was really weird. It was, um, it was almost like a freight train. It just like, kept rolling. Yeah. It was like a freight train going through. It was kind of cool. Yeah, no, it was a it was a remarkable storm. Uh, yeah. How often have you had tornado sirens here? Is it pretty common or not? No, that it's common? not. It's not really that common here this in is this area. Yeah. And you said unfortunately one of the one of the towns not far from I here did, got hit. Yeah, yeah. Storton got hit. Um, I'm not sure about all the damage. I did see a picture of one of the houses. Yeah. Um, those people are staying here. That's good. So we're night, at a so. hotel right now. It looks like yes. you, you look out for a lot of the people that are here, right? I do. The owners are out of town, and so I'm just kind of yeah, watching the place for them while they're gone. Well, and that was really nice for you to go door to door and just to let, make people yeah. aware, right? Yes. That they, they could maybe take shelter and right. protect themselves. Right, because, you know, you never know if you can even hear the alarms when you're in the room. So. Yeah, exactly. I know. It was just, I felt safe for doing that for Yeah, them. well, that's good. That's a good act of service to you. Then I appreciate you taking time. I hope for a quick recovery around here. Thank and you. I keep watching storm chasing. Oh, and, uh, I will. I and you will. can we'll, we'll show you how to follow our GeoTrek stuff online. Cool. You can see all of our storm videos and forecasts. Cool. That would be great. Thanks for taking time. Thank you. Wow, just a short little interview there with Senna at the motel in Wyndham, Minnesota, but we made a really important observation there. This was the second time in less than a year when I was storm chasing and came across a hotel manager who was going out of her way to protect guests. In this case, Senna was going door to door in the motel, warning people about incoming danger as she was afraid not all the guests could hear the tornado sirens. Last August, during Hurricane Ida, a hotel manager named Melissa Marino intentionally kept her hotel open when all others in the area closed to bring people in from the low country from Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana, as Category 4 Hurricane Ida was bearing down on the Louisiana coast. You can hear the podcast that we recorded live in the hotel lobby. It's GeoTrek podcast number seven. It's one of the most exciting ones that we've ever recorded. Both of these women were heroes in my eyes, looking out for others in the community instead of disengaging or just trying to protect themselves. This reminds me that unsung heroes are all around us and people like hotel managers are often taking risks to protect others in the community. Think about, say, even during hurricane evacuations. It's not just the people that are in the main hurricane impact zone, but the evacuation really stretches for hundreds of miles. And hotel managers, again, become these very important people to help coordinate people's stay as they're traveling out of harm's way. After interviewing Senna in Minnesota, I interviewed a man named Jeremy who was taking refuge at the same motel. His home took a direct hit from the storm, so he came with his family to the motel to take refuge for the night. You saw them or were you out? I was in, out in the country. Oh, you were out in the country? I was out in the country when I first seen them. And you saw these storm clouds coming in? Yep. Um, so did you go to the house then? And then I ran to the house and told the kids to get to the basement. Oh yeah? They and get then, downstairs? Oh yeah, they were already downstairs when oh, I got back were, to the okay. house, yeah. It sounds like you've had storms before and they kind of knew what to do. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did the and wind start blowing right away or did they... Did no, they we were downstairs and then all of a sudden the power went out and we could hear the the wind just hitting right through the house. Yeah, it was blowing pretty I mean, hard. It, it was, I mean, it rumbled everything. Did you get any hail? I'm not sure if we got hail or not. But the winds mostly and the wind damage to the roof. And yep. everything else. Yeah, and next to the house there's uh, Meadowlands. They had four or six bins total and four of them were gone. They're completely level. Wow. So there's it only two of the wind. Yeah. It was, it was quite intense. Those were metal, you said metal lands? Metal, metal lands. Oh, metal, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, wow, so it was blowing for what, maybe 10 minutes, 15? At least 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Like a downpouring rain. Yeah, pretty intense. Yeah. Um, well, I hope for a quick recovery for you yeah. guys. Have you seen storms like that before? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've, like I've lived in Southwest Minnesota my whole life, so. And you guys do get tornadoes and severe weather yep. quite a bit. Oh, yes. You get all kinds of extremes, and then the yeah. severe weather in the wintertime, winter Wintertime, right? too, yeah. What's harder for you, the, the summer, the winter, the, the spring I, storms? I hate the best. I hate winter. Really? Oh, so yeah. you're like when the warm weather comes yep. over. I like that part. Yeah. And Jeremy, I wish you a quick recovery. Right. I appreciate you taking time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, so much for sharing your story. You bet. Day two of our tornado chase took us to South Dakota. NOAA's Storm Prediction Center forecast a moderate chance of severe weather in the eastern part of the state, and the weather discussions said the best chance for supercell development was west of I-29. So we drove from southwest Minnesota to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, then north along I-29 to a town called Watertown by late afternoon. Then we drove west looking for these supercells as storms fired to the southwest of us on radar. At this point, we had some conceptual work to do. What did we want to see? What did we want to capture on video? We had to figure this out and really make decisions on how to prioritize where we wanted to be for these storms. My 14 years of hurricane chasing have given me a preference for storm documentation in the built environment. I love to document the impact of strong wind and flowing water on buildings to help with the forensic work that determines at what wind speed or water level most of the damage occurred. I found such work to be more beneficial for myself and others than just filming palm trees blowing around in the wind. Taking a page from that playbook, I was leaning towards us documenting the severe weather in a town. We ended up in a small town called Clark, South Dakota, as the storms approached us. We were on the west end of town when things happened really quickly. A fast-moving cloud with the most amazing shape, it was rounded like the edge of a wedding cake, quickly approached us. For the moment, we were rain-free, but the winds were picking up. Then suddenly, the National Weather Service put us under a tornado warning in Clark, just four minutes to spare before that cell hit us. The rounded cloud, which was probably a supercell, passed from south to north, tracking just west of us, and then a pitch-black linear-type cloud approached from uh, behind. Uh, it, this was all happening really quickly. We thought this might have an embedded tornado in it, and we became concerned for our safety. We ended up taking refuge with seven other people at a gas station in Clark, South Dakota. We left our car at the gas pumps to protect it from hail and got just inside before the storm hit. As we held together in the entryway of the gas station, tornado sirens screamed from behind the gusty winds. We didn't see a direct tornado strike in Clark that evening, but we definitely got some serious straight-line winds. Outside the gas station, we interviewed a brave young woman named Kaya, who was driving in the storm, ended up in a ditch, but kept her cool, and ended up in the gas station taking refuge with the rest of us. Driving, all of a sudden you see this abandoned cottage, and what happened? So the wind was really bad, and I was only going probably about 20 miles an hour, and I just see it like just fly right off, and it scared the me roof. really. Yeah, the roof of it, and it just, and then some of it, like all the other debris was going past me, and I got really scared, so I kind of swerved a little bit, and the wind kind of took control of my car too and I went into the ditch real slow. I sat there probably for about another 10 minutes. And could I you get out of the ditch or were you kind of Yeah, I w no, I could get out of it. It was, it was, I don't know, it wasn't that bad. I just. Yeah. So were you able to call your family? Or yeah, I was able with? to get in touch with my dad and he just told me to keep driving the car, get into this gas station. So to get here and, and take refuge. Yeah. 
So that's why you came in, you joined us. We were all here taking shelter together. Um, yeah. And then you're going to Watertown, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I yeah. think from what we see, the roads are pretty clear that way, but um, I'm glad you're okay. Thank you so much. It, it all happened so fast. Yeah, huh? it was scary. It was crazy. I've never seen anything like that. I'm only 19 years old. I've yeah. been living on my own for, you know, not even a year yet, and I yeah. have never seen anything These like that. These storms can, can, can hit so quickly, but you did the right thing by kind of getting off yeah. the road. You know? I knew what I was doing. I got into the ditch, you know, yeah. on my own, but yeah. and I was able to get out, so. Well, Kaya, we're glad you're okay. <laughs> Thank and, you so uh, much. And thanks so much for sharing your story yeah, with us. no problem. The Clark, South Dakota tornado chase taught me so much. Just like the evening before, large hail was a consistent theme in the forecast, but we did not see any. Instead, we saw a surprising amount of damage from straight-line winds. When we got back to I-29, traveling south toward Sioux Falls, we encountered at least eight tractor trailers that were blown over. I'd not expected this. Were the drivers okay? What were they transporting? How often does this happen? And what is the cost in terms of driver injury and damage to goods when tractor trailers end up on their side? I also learned that severe weather chasing on the Great Plains is very different than hurricane chasing. It all happens so fast and then it's gone. You know, you spend all day forecasting and determining a plan and everything just breaks down in, in a few minutes. These storms hit and go often in 10 to 15 minutes. The cloud formations there in the severe weather on the plains are truly majestic. And in the future, I'll try to intercept more of these storms in open spaces so I can see these amazing cloud shapes. Build environments like cities and towns are much trickier for severe weather and tornado chases because buildings and trees obstruct your view and airborne debris becomes a serious threat. My spring storm chases gave me a deep admiration for severe weather on the Great Plains, but for every perspective I gained about this meteorology, I came up with even more questions. How unusual was it to find severe thunderstorms and tornadoes in South Dakota and Minnesota? Is it true that geographic pattern of tornado strikes is shifting? And how does the climatology of large hail differ from tornado climatology in space and time, or do they completely overlap? To answer these questions, I reached out to Victor Gensini, an associate professor in the Department of Geographic and Atmospheric Sciences at Northern Illinois University. Victor has extensive experience publishing research on severe weather and spending extended time in severe weather country observing and documenting storms. Victor, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Victor, really appreciate you coming on the GeoTrek podcast. We've been looking a lot at severe weather. There's been a lot of discussion about perhaps changes in severe weather patterns, uh, you know, spatially, temporally, all those types of things. And your name keeps coming up as far as someone with a lot of expertise with uh, looking at tornado patterns and severe weather. Uh, what do you see when you look at the long-term trends for, say, like tornado frequency? Are, are you seeing? Are we seeing changes in this over space and time? That's a great question and a perfect timing for this podcast because I literally just got back from spending 10,000 miles on the road roaming the Great Plains of the United States all the way up to the Canadian border in search of these supercell thunderstorms that you know produce the world's largest hail and some of the most intense tornadoes on earth. And I will tell you, it has actually been one of the slowest tornado seasons for storm chasers on record dating back to when we started keeping good records which is in the early 1950s and that you know this is not the first year for this sort of downward uh if you will trend in severe weather activity across the plains i've noticed it actually it stems some research that we published in 2018 looking at you know if you're in wichita kansas for example what is 
what has been your threat, your kind of time series, right, of threat of tornadoes through time versus a place, say, in Memphis, Tennessee, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Chicago, uh, where I'm located. And I started, you know, crunching these numbers, and lo and behold, this is this was sort of, you know, a lot of discussion has, has sort of centered around this idea that just compared to 1950 or 1960 or even in the 70s, fewer tornadoes are happening in portions of the Great Plains, and we're seeing them happen more frequently east of the Mississippi River. And of course, that's a big, big deal when you start thinking about the number of targets, right, and the number of homes and the population density as you get east of the Mississippi River. And the result has really been about a stagnant level in the number of United States tornadoes, right? Because you're losing some in some places and you're gaining in others. But we're seeing more disasters because these tornadoes are hitting things with way more frequency, right? 1950, tornado in the Kansas, you know, who reported it? You know, maybe the farmer if it hit his or her farmstead. Now these tornadoes are up on YouTube, right, within five minutes. So with some of these shifts, we're seeing a real change in impact. Like you mentioned, as we go farther east, generally the population is higher. So if we're seeing more tornadoes farther east, they may on average impact more than if they were, say, in western Kansas or Nebraska. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's it's the really the development of the human footprint, right? In Kansas, where you have cities, you know, you have Wichita and Dodge City and Garden City, some of these larger but they're very, very concentrated, right? You think of, uh, you know, Atlanta or Houston, where you get these large sprawling metropolitan areas that are really just giant bullseyes on the dartboard compared to these more confined, you know, centric population centers that we see in the Great Plains. There's also a lot of other things happening in the Mid-South and Southeastern United States, really anywhere as you get east of the Mississippi, we have more trees, right? More trees in the Great Plains, you can see hundreds of miles with nothing in your way tornado in Mississippi or Tennessee, right? You may not even know that tornado is there until it's on top of you. And of course, there are all a whole host of other socioeconomic issues that kind of just lead to more injuries and fatalities as you get east of the Mississippi River. With a shift in some of these tornado patterns, are we seeing tornadoes hit areas that, you know, we did don't have a long-term history of that as much, you know? I, I've just spent a lot of time this spring on, in Oklahoma, Kansas. I mean, there's a history of people having storm cellars and things and storm shelters underground. I, I haven't seen as much history of that, say, in Alabama or Tennessee. Is, is that uh, is there something there as well as far as when these shifts happen? Maybe there's there's a culture that needs to follow with it, perhaps. You know, that's a great point. And this comes down to, you know, societal, what I consider societal complacency. You know, you mentioned the storm shelters in Oklahoma. Believe it or not, if you visit casinos, right, in Oklahoma, they give away storm shelters. They don't give away cars. They give away storm shelters. In Alabama and Mississippi, that does not happen. Why? Because in Alabama and Mississippi or other areas of the Mid-South or even the Southeast or Northeast, your tornado season is spread out over the entire year, right? You are just as likely to get a tornado in May or June as you are in December or November. And so what happens is you kind of have this low grade tornado risk that exists all year. You go to Oklahoma, all the storm chasers are there in May and June, right? You have this kind of two week window where bam, it's thunderstorms every day. And there's a very heightened societal awareness as to what tornado season means in the Great Plains. That does not exist in other populations. And it's is one of the things, you know, people east of the Mississippi, you, you know, you have these discussions and they say, well, you know, we're not in Tornado Alley. 
And then I ask them, well, where do you think Tornado Alley really is? And they say, well, that's Kansas, that's Dorothy, that's Oklahoma. We don't get those storms here. We get some bad wind and rain every now and then, but not tornadoes. And of course, we have tornadoes documented in all 50 states, including Alaska and Hawaii. And furthermore, it doesn't matter what the calendar says. Right. Anytime, so, right, anytime those ingredients are present, you can get them. Yeah. So we have some people that maybe have a higher risk than they realize, or they say, well, I'm in Kentucky. I'm not in Oklahoma. I don't need to worry about this, but they really do. They do. And tornadoes are rare events. Look, I mean, not there are very, very few of us that are ever going to be impacted directly by a tornado. But when you start aggregating over a number of years and larger spatial geographies, you start to realize that these are things, you know, these are phenomena that are happening with, with pretty high frequency in any given uh, geography. And of course, that's where, you know, th this whole idea of education and understanding and let letting people under, uh, you know, teaching them that, hey, look, this is not just an Oklahoma or Texas phenomenon. These are things that all it takes is one tornado, right, to make your day a really bad day. Victor, last December, there was a very powerful tornado in Kentucky. Does this fit the pattern of some of these stronger tornadoes getting outside what people considered to be that core area of like North Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas? Are, are we seeing more powerful tornadoes outside of that traditional region? The powerful aspect is very, very tricky because we don't have a really, really good long temporal record. There are, I think there, there's two two pieces to this question. I think the power thing is, is a very, very interesting one in terms of understanding intensity, right? Our, our tornado is getting stronger. What's really, really unique about the December event in Mayfield, Kentucky, is that it happened in December. The only analog that we have for that type of long track, intense tornado would be way back at the tri-state tornado in March of 1925, right? That crossed three states. And we've seen supercells and tornadoes do this before, but it was almost exclusively going to happen in these very high frequency peak tornado months. And so for that to happen in December, I think raised a lot of alarm bells in the research community, forecasting community saying, you know, is this a fingerprint of, of climate change? Is it, does it fit this narrative of the shift that people have been showing? Um, I think we realize we have a, you know, the atmosphere, once we think it has like goalposts, right? It's going to behave in between these goalposts, we get thrown a curveball. And, you know, we get an event that perhaps we've never seen before, at least in the recorded history. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. This spring, I did my first tornado chase. My history, my background's more with hurricanes. And uh, sure enough, we found ourselves in Minnesota and South Dakota, not exactly where you'd picture chasing tornadoes. Does that surprise you? I mean, some of the northward shift we saw in a lot of the activity this year. I mean, how abnormal was that? Or, or is that not that abnormal? I, again, I go back to my experience this year. I didn't step foot in Texas or Oklahoma, and I went storm chasing for nearly a month, 10,000 miles. I got into New Mexico, which is not a lot of plays, right, people think of. I spent most of my time Interstate 70, Kansas, and northward. We were in the Dakotas. We were in Nebraska quite a bit, northeast Colorado. We didn't, we weren't in those areas where, you know, if I gave a normal layperson a map and said, you know, where do you think I storm chased this year, they would have not even gotten close to that geography. So, it's all about, you know, in these year to year variability that we see, it's all about, you know, the pattern. What is the pattern like? You know, where's the jet stream located? How much moisture do you have? Where are these, you know, you're baking an apple pie, only in this case, you're trying to make a tornado and you got to have those very specific ingredients in play. Do you see that as part of a longer trend or do you think this year it was just the way the variable set up and not necessarily a longer term trend? 
I think there's a component of natural variability, but it certainly fits in the background trend of what we've been seeing lately in terms of shifts away from the, the greater, you know, Great Plains, which is kind of becoming a more arid desert in many respects. I mean, look at the temperatures down there this week and the previous week and the week before that. I mean, we're hitting 100 every day, right, in Dallas, Fort Worth, Oklahoma City. Extremely high temperatures. And when you have those type of temperatures, it actually doesn't. People think you get a lot of heat, a lot of humidity, you're going to get really bad storms actually there's a certain threshold to which you cross that you go into a desert like regime sure <laughs> and so um yes it fits the narrative and you know we can't say for certain this is something like okay climate change is absolutely causing this but it's it's like uh you know it's getting a like a paradise right and you roll box cars uh well maybe on one of the die you're going to change the number from a five to a six you know anytime you roll box cars it doesn't necessarily mean that it was because you changed that one number but certainly rolling lots of right lots of roles you've altered the probability of those events happening sure that makes a lot of sense a lot of this comes down to probability and likeliness you know in the long term in the beginning of the podcast you mentioned hail is there a specific geography to where we would find large hail say like in the the plains and midwest or is, does that you know does that correlate pretty pretty closely with where we would see say say tornadoes or not necessarily yeah, great question. The so United States, so I'll, first of all, pretty much everywhere on planet Earth can get severe hail, which in the United States we say severe is about the size of a U.S. quarter or larger, so about one inch in diameter. If you go for the biggest hailstones, we're talking softballs, grapefruits, um, you know, you're getting above five inches in diameter. Those are almost going to be exclusively found in the central Great Plains of the United States. So we kind of think of this eastward shift in tornado frequency near the Mississippi River. The greatest hail frequency every year, though, is actually much further west than that. It's western Kansas. It's western Oklahoma, the Texas panhandle, portions of western Nebraska. Can you get, you know, two-inch, three-inch, four-inch hailstones east of the Mississippi? Absolutely. We have those rare cases. But overall, if you look at, you know, the last 30 years' worth of hail data, those biggest hailstones that we find are kind of in that traditional colloquial you know, central Great Plains tornado alley that many of us think of. Victor, what about the seasonality of big hail? I mean, is that kind of aligning with the April, May type of thing, or is that offset a little bit? Biggest hail is typically, or like a little bit, uh, it's during supercell season. We see a lot of really big hail in May. If you want to get really, really large hail, you have to have an updraft that's basically like a corkscrew. So you have to have a thunderstorm, like a supercell, right? That almost is like a uh, think of it as almost a fertilizer sprayer. These things are whipping sure. out hailstones out of the updraft. Um, you know, the, the peak tornado frequency actually happens in late May, early June. That's the United States sort of peak. And the hail starts just, just slightly before that due, due to the supercell climatology and the fact that the temperatures aloft are a little bit colder, right? It's a little bit easier to get those hailstones down to the surface before they melt. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you talk about supercells, so you're talking about really like independent uh, thunderstorm cells that are rotating, right? Like, so this is not necessarily part of a line. They basically have a mind of their own. They are cellular. They do not develop in these long linear lines that we call QLCSs. There's your word for the day of the podcast, quasi linear convective systems. Those are big lines of thunderstorms. You don't generally get big hail in those lines of thunderstorms. When you pop open the radar and you see uh, you know, a cell, a thunderstorm cell that looks a lot more like a small blob or an amoeba. Those are the ones that are actually much more likely to produce hail because there's not a lot of updraft interaction going on. And yes, those supercells are a very, very special breed of thunderstorms 
they are the ones that produced a majority of the significant hail, so two inches or greater in diameter, and also the strong tornadoes. Those are the ones that forecasters are always on the lookout for. Yeah, that makes sense. I did my first wildfire chase this year. I, I, I was going away from hurricanes this year. I said, let me let me do everything else. So I did my first tornado chase and my first wildfire chase. I was in central and west Texas. This was like in March. And I got down, I was close to Del Rio, Texas, not far from the Rio Grande River. I never crossed into Mexico, but I actually did have to go through a checkpoint. At the checkpoint, point, they started asking me questions. Who am I? Where am I going? When I mentioned I'm a, you know, extreme weather scientist, a, a couple supervisors came over immediately and they said, are we going to have big hail again this year? They seemed really afraid of hail. And this wasn't that far from that location west of San Antonio last year that that set the record for the, I, I think it was like a seven inch hailstone or, or something. I know Texas got enormous hail last year and people were on the ground were legitimately really scared about it going into the spring. And then I think like Norman, Oklahoma had a few huge hail events as well last year. What was going on last year that the Southern Plains were just getting pounded by these massive hailstorms? So first of all, you're you're braver than I for going wildfire chasing. Let me just say that. Um, you're the second aspect of you being down in South Texas, you know, in uh, hail. It's sort of a, a funny story. I'll make it very quick. But we were storm chasing near the border, as you sounds like you you were. And we decided to cross into Mexico. And now this has been several years before cartels. And, you know, we're talking 15, 20 years ago. And we actually got pointed at by machine guns, by young Mexican military and said, you know, turn around, go back across the border. You're not really. And I'll tell you, though, from a supercell hail climatology, some of the largest and most intense thunderstorms, supercell thunderstorms on planet Earth are actually just across the Rio Grande border in Mexico. You can see the scars in the forest from satellite, from really long track supercells down there. Um, and yet none of us has, have experienced them, right? Because we're not brave enough to go storm chasing down in Mexico. Victor, those would be long track tornadoes? Oh, long track tornadoes, long track supercells that have winds that microburst, that blow down forests. They, they just look really impressive from satellite. And there's no ground truth for us to be able to cross the border and study them. But uh, yeah, it's, a mag it, it's called old, the storm chasers call it old faithful. Almost every day in early spring down there, you get big supercells that come off the Sierra del Madres. It's a mountain range down there. And then they move off east into the lower terrain and they produce some really large hail and supercells. But to your question about the Southern Plains, they just have a very unique geography there. You're close proximity to the, you know, your moisture source with the Gulf of Mexico. But most importantly, when you're in Texas and Oklahoma, you're very close to that hot and dry desert air mass. And that hot, dry desert air mass comes right over top of that moisture at the surface, and it creates what we call a cap or a lid. And the stronger that cap is, when you finally do let it go, you know, think of boiling a pot of water on your stove. If you hold that stove, hold that lid on that pot, and then all of a sudden pull the pot off, you get a huge percolation, right, which is that updraft, versus if you were to just take the lid off and kind of let the water boil right? You can't store up all that energy. So in Texas and Oklahoma, when you want the really, really big hail, you want a really vigorous or strong thunderstorm updraft. And the way you do that is to have a capping inversion present. And that's, you know, in the springtime in the Southern Plains, you get that, you know, I don't want to say on a daily basis, but I mean, there's periods where you could have six, seven, eight days in a row with large hail somewhere in the state. So basically you have the cap and then if that cap erodes or, or, or if if the updraft can break through that cap, say mid to late afternoon, that's where you get the really explosive updrafts and the big hail. You're exactly right. 
Yeah. Wow. That's that's really uh, interesting. I know, you know, it, it's really interesting to understand the climatology is behind these these severe weather hazards and kind of what's driving them. And, you know, there's there's usually a reason behind the pattern. Right. So, um, I mean, if you ask me, people ask me, like, why does the United States have so many tornadoes? Why does the United States have so many hailstones you know, versus other places in the world? You know, if you want to point to one specific thing that we have, we have this desert capping air mass and in, in that comes off of the Chihuahuan Desert in Mexico. It's it, it, we call it advected. It's essentially moved or translated over Texas and Oklahoma and portions of the United States. Without that air mass, you don't have a capping inversion and you don't have a lot of severe weather in the United States. That And, and it's very, very delicate Goldilocks problem because if you have too much cap, no storms form, right? And if the cap is too weak, then you got a lot of these very weak percolating updrafts, thunderstorms. It's that middle ground where you can hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it until late afternoon, store up all that energy, and then bam, you break the cap, you get these robust, just majestic cauliflower updrafts that blossom into these, you know, really, really strong thunderstorms and potentially supercells. And that's when you get your, you know, your, your really impactful. Severe so the, the sweet spot is where you have the cap there for a while, kind of helping build up that pressure. And then when it erodes, it's just very explosive. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Victor, when you think back to your years of storm chasing, is there one particular memory that comes to mind, like where you're in the field and you're like, whoa, this just made sense of a whole lot of science that maybe you had, you know, studied? I mean, I love that you get out there and you're not just doing the theoretical work and the academic work. You're you're out there on the ground. I mean, does a storm chase come come to mind where you learned a lot in one afternoon? That is a really tough question. I have always been on the science side of like, I, I want to get out of, so I do a lot of work in the lab and my lab is primarily inside of a computer, right? I'm modeling these storms. I'm trying to figure out how they work from a theoretical aspect inside of the computer. But for me to step out into the field with my own two eyes away from the equations and see what's happening in reality, I can't even point to a specific day. I, I, almost every time I'm out there in the field, I'm like, oh, wow, that that's actually counterintuitive to what we thought. Or we launch a weather balloon near a supercell and we're like, oh, well, no wonder this thing is not producing a tornado. We're missing a whole bunch, there's too much dry air at the surface or something like that, right? When I'm out in the field, I, I have a, uh, you know, this, it's like a different side of your brain that's working. You're, you're hopping out of the theoretical and you're moving into the observational. And it has made me such a better scientist you know, in the aggregate, it, it's it's usually not kind of one like big paradigm shift or something light bulb clicking. It's a lot of like small successive things that start to make sense and you piece together through time. Um, but yeah, there have been, I've chased some magnificent storms that I, you know, you get done with the day after chasing you, you're just like, oh man, like we need to get back to the lab and like unpack everything that just happened. Yeah, it, it can actually be quite an emotional experience, right? I mean, you're you're out there, you're chasing this, you're involved with the science, but then there is the, a little bit of a danger element and just you and a surprise element, right? You you're like you don't quite know what you're going to find on any given day, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest danger to storm chasing is just you know I told you ten thousand miles. You're on the road a lot, and you know driving has its own inherent dangers, and of course you're not driving in the best of conditions either. <laughs> you know, you're driving wet pavement, heavy rain, and and so there's strategies that you can kind of take to, you know, mitigate your risk and so on. And so, um, but yeah, I, I will sort of end that discussion by saying that I'm really excited. We're, we're proposing a new field campaign to study hail in 2024 and 2025. These are going to be 
National Science Foundation, um, you know, high level scientific projects that are really going to try to advance our understanding of, of hail. And uh, in year one, we're actually going to be in Colorado and then year two, we'll be roaming around uh, the Great Plains. So we're really excited about that campaign and hope that uh, it'll get off the ground here in, in the next few months. I love that. That's super exciting. Exciting. I'm always um, really a big fan of any field science and things that are going to get out there and, and increase our our you know, knowledge of the, the science, you know, atmospheric science, climate, all this type of stuff. Victor, how can people follow you? How can they follow what you're working on? Uh, your, you know, the types of projects. Uh, thank you for mentioning the Hill project coming up. Are, are there other ways that people can follow what you're doing and, um, and, and um, keep progress with you? Sure. I'm not as active on social media as I used to just because I try to stay away from all the political stuff nowadays. I just only post science and pictures from storm chasing, but I'm on Twitter. You can follow me at it's uh, at Gensini, my last name, G-E-N-S-I-N-I-W-X, weather. Uh, W-X is short for weather. So Gensini W-X on Twitter. Um, I do post like recaps there sometimes for storm chasing. I also have a blog that I need to update from all my pictures this year. I do a really good job updating my field pictures as we go along. And that blog is at uh, GensiniWX.com. It's really easy to get to. And then I kind of just do a synopsis or a recap every day of things that we learn, pictures that we take from the field. Um, and, you know, just so that when I retire and look back, I have some logs that I can kind of go through and sort of, it'll be like nostalgia for me, I suppose, when I retire. So. For, for those of you tuning into the audio podcast, we're doing this virtually and I can see in your background there, you have some beautiful weather photography. I can't wait to go and check out your blog. Yeah. Check out my blog for the pictures again, GensiniWX.com. I have tons and tons of pictures. I, you know, oh my gosh, it's just, it's a byproduct, right? Of being in front of lots and lots of majestic supercells. And so. Um, yeah, my wife's probably not too happy, but I have the house basically plastered with supercell photos. So, hey, it's it's I think it's the most beautiful art. Victor, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Best wishes to you and your research and your future field work. And I thank you so much for taking time to to share your insights on severe weather with us today. No worries. Thanks. I'll take care. Wow, Victor, thank you so much for those insights. Those are incredible. We learned a lot in this interview, and I feel like I have a much better understanding of severe weather and tornado climatology based on what you taught us right there. Seriously, friends, check out Victor's blog and Twitter feed. He has amazing photography and explains the science behind what's happening in many of those photos. It'll really inspire you and uh, get you even more excited about severe weather. Speaking of documenting storms, check out the mini documentary the GeoTrek team produced on our storm chase in the Northern Plains back in May 2022. This doc launches on the GeoTrek YouTube channel on June 29th and it provides intense footage of the storm chase. You can also join our discussion about severe storms, tornadoes, and all other types of extreme weather and disasters that we encounter in our Facebook group called GeoTrek The Community. That's also a place where you can upload your own severe weather pics and videos if large hail, tornadoes, flooding rain, or damaging winds strike your area. But of course, always prioritize your own safety first and foremost if documenting severe weather. Hey everyone, thank you so much for coming on along the ride for this exciting podcast. We're always uh, learning new things around here, and I have a feeling we'll be doing a lot more severe weather chasing in the future. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal Needham. Keep exploring your world, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey, everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, 
please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. <laughs>